Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 23. My guest in this show is Steve Rogers. Steve is a fabulous bloke to chat with. He's got such an interesting story to tell, and he's completely open and honest about his professional career and his life in general. Steve's is a story about corporate high-flying, enormous personal wealth, personal wrangling, and the seeking of a new path to find his higher calling. He barely graduated from high school and didn't go to college. But at the peak of his corporate career, he oversaw $25 billion in annual sales as the CEO of one of Warren Buffett's real estate companies. And at the depth of his personal lows, he battled some serious addictions. Steve talks us through the halcyon days of the pre-GFC real estate game and he tells us all about his experience climbing the corporate ladder and what it was like to work for one of the most mystical figures in the capitalist world. He tells us about his weaknesses, the hard lessons he learned, and the very personal reasons he unshackled himself from the financial largesse of high-end real estate to pursue his greater purpose. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the very open and honest Steve Rogers. Steve Rogers, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. So nice to have you on. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. It's a uh... Always nice to hear the, uh, we were talking about the Aussie accent, so thanks for inviting me in, and I think it's going to be a fun venture with us the next half hour, hour here. Steve, your career, your biography is so impressive, and as we go through that later in the episode, my listeners are going to be very impressed by some of the people that you've worked with and some of the, the raw numbers that you've achieved through your career. But let's start by talking about what it is that you do right now and, and how you came to this point in your career. Yeah, thank you for that. Right now, I consider myself a consultant, a coach, an author, and an entrepreneur, which is kind of mouthful, but I'm doing all of those things. I'm definitely a solo uh, entrepreneur with a, well, it's not, I'm not solo anymore. I just hired a virtual assistant from the Philippines, so I've got someone helping me, so I'm no longer solo. But I work partially from my house, and I'm a lot out in the field. I was just out with a client today out in the field, but I consult companies and larger companies that are looking to increase profits or to connect better with a consumer or hopefully have a higher purpose within their organization of having higher meaning for something they're doing. And then I do coaching, which is one-on-one coaching with entrepreneurs that are looking to have a balanced life, but also looking to help maximize and build their business. I can uh, say that I'm an author now because I just have a book that's publishing on Amazon uh, here in the next few weeks. And I also, in an entrepreneur, meaning that I also do multiple businesses where I have either stock or investment opportunities in other businesses. So I consider myself a serial entrepreneur. So I'm a smorgasbord of a guy now. We live in the age of the professional profile. And when I asked that question, you were very quick to list those things that you are, consultant, entrepreneur, et cetera. You've obviously very well drilled in that. And isn't it funny how we've we've all got to have that down pat, don't we? We need to be able to say exactly what we do in, in real clarity, given that at the moment, so many of us do jobs that aren't just straight up and down nine to five jobs working for a, for an employer. Yeah, that's, that's true. 
And when you ask me what I do, that's what I rattle off. If someone asks me who I am, and maybe I got the question wrong too, but you know, I, what I really, above all of that, all of those labels, because I've had labels for years, whether it was some of the titles we'll talk about, ultimately what I am at the core is a spiritual being having a human experience, which I think Wayne Dyer put so well. So that's really who I am. And that's really kind of how I try and show up in my, in my work, in my writing, in my daily practice, really being a spiritual being with a, a human secondary element, uh, realizing that we're kind of all, you know, we're in that package that we uh, have to roll around in each day. So it's, I spoke earlier about the impressive career that you've had, and some of the numbers are extraordinary in your biography. You were a CEO of a Warren Buffett company. You were in charge of, a, of an organization that produced $25 billion in annual sales, almost 40,000 transactions. That's a really impressive position. And why is it that you didn't just stay on that path? Why is Steve Rogers not the CEO of a huge corporation today? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a lot of uh, successes and challenges and tragedies in that story. I had been in that organization for 15 years. When I started with that organization, which was a prudential company, a franchise at the time, we had maybe eight or nine offices. It was in the uh, middle of the 90s. And at the peak of that company, when we grew it, we grew that company up to 110 offices, about almost 5,000 salespeople. And as you said, mentioned, we were doing about $25 billion a year in our peak. And then we got by, bought by Warren Buffett's, one of his divisions of his companies called Home Services of America in the, about 2001. So I was under the Buffett organization for about seven or eight years. But the real estate market, as many listening uh, may know, that in the, especially in the U.S., took a major, major crash in 2005, 2006, and the market just started crashing and burning. So one of the things that you do in a corporate company when things cut is you cut, 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 cut. So my course of order being a CEO at the time was to consolidate like crazy. So I slashed the hell out of the company, which was a real hard, very tragic thing to do because I had helped be one of the teams that built it. So uh, over about a two-year period, I closed almost 40 to 45 offices of the 100 we had, laid off tons of people, cut out tons in the operating budget. And then a week before Christmas, they came in and said, okay, we're going to put the guy in under you that makes half the money that you make. You're out of here too. So ultimately, I got fired. I got fired. I didn't get fired by Warren Buffett, but I got fired by people way under the food chain. And at the time, we were calling that adult musical chair time in the real estate business. Mortgage companies were closing and consolidating left and right. Real estate companies were closing up. And I had been part of a regime there for a very long time. And when the football team sometimes needs to change, they change the head coach. So even though they fired me, what they actually did was birth an entrepreneur. And uh, that became my claim to fame from there. You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. So much to talk about in that little story there. Now, you're probably sick of talking about this, but I can't let it slide. You worked quite closely with Warren Buffett for a number of years. That, of course, is really interesting to a lot of listeners. Warren Buffett is a almost mythological figure in the way that he's conducted himself. We love hearing the stories of his vast wealth, yet the very modest lifestyle that he leads. Uh, we love hearing the stories about the fact that he's pledged to give away 99% of his wealth. That's amazing. And he still lives in the house that he bought with his first wife in 1961 or something like that. So it's it's amazing. Tell us what that experience was was like with Warren Buffett. First of all, tell me, when your organization was taken over by Warren Buffett, what's the feeling within the company? Because you think, well, here's a guy who's famous for making money. This is He's not doing this because he likes our business and he likes me as a person. He's doing this because of the bottom line. How does that affect an organization from the start? Yeah, those are great questions. Uh, let me see if I can sum up. At the time, even though I'm a huge Warren Buffett fan, at the time, 
when the owners of the company who had been building this company and were big entrepreneurs, they were very out of the box entrepreneurs. And part of the reason that they did so well is they gave people a lot of room to grow within their company. They gave a lot of people, including myself, times to thrive and grow. And we were kind of like cowboys and cowgirls out in the entrepreneurial world. And I had been being promised equity in that company for a few years. I was one of their rising stars. So when they, when they, after September 11th happened, and I'm sure people remember that to this day, how they felt, how it was, he sold the company within six months after September 11th, my, my boss and owner, because he knew the real estate market would probably go in the tank. I understand why he did it, but I, at the time, was pissed. I wasn't happy that I was going to become part of a Berkshire Hathaway system. I was pissed. I was probably in my, at the time, let's see, probably mid-30s. I was an aggressive, growing kind of guy. I had been pursued by many companies to go out and either start companies with them, forge other partnerships, go do my own thing. And the real estate market of those days were, it was very renegade. You know, it was like a lot of people making a lot of money. So at the time, I was excited for him and pissed at my opportunities because I, great, now I'm going to be a corporate guy. What's that going to fare for me? And all these equity that I've been being promised was going to be pulled out from under me. So I was not happy. What happened was immediately they knew that was the case and smart entrepreneurs and leaders like that know that they have to keep their people in check. So they immediately had a package ready for me of stuff they wanted to offer me. And, you know, there wasn't any equity because once you sell to Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett's not going to offer you equity unless you buy tons of his stock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's all Warren Buffett's, isn't it? Exactly. So unless you're shareholders in Berkshire stuff. So I knew from that standpoint. So my point with that story was they said, we want to groom you to become the CEO. At the time, I was maybe the general manager or the vice president. They said, we're only staying on for five years. You're anointed to be the CEO. We want to prime you for this. We'd like you to meet the head guy under Warren Buffett, Ron Peltier, and eventually you'll meet Warren Buffett. And all those things ended up happening. So I thought, I'm just going to get my ego in check. I'm going to get my temper in check. I'm going to get my, this isn't fair life in check and realize this is a huge, huge opportunity. What, what am I thinking? My owners of my company, after I calmed down and, and realized that I felt like I'd been betrayed to a degree, got me to the other side of the coin. So I stepped back, took a deep breath, and I looked at the opportunity. And I remember the first time I met Mr. Buffett. I mean, I walked into a room. There's probably 20 or 30 people in the cocktail function we were at. He was coming to speak uh, prior to a leadership event we were having. And I wasn't nervous. I was extremely excited. I was extremely honored to go, God, I'm freaking getting ready to go meet Warren Buffett. This is crazy. <laughs> he, you know. And he walks in and he looks like somebody's grandpa in a bad JC Penny suit. Yeah. You know, his glasses kind of all cockeyed. They're kind of all smeared up and, you know, kind of has the hair growing out of his ears, kind of like you would expect a grandpa to look like. He's so unassuming. Yeah. But he's got this. I mean, you know, it's Warren Buffett. So it's just this perceived aura that you see anyway. But it's almost like there's this cloud around him of this energy of magnetism that's not like you would expect to see in a Hollywood celebrity, but it's kind of like that. I get you. He's. He's just like this guy, and then you shake his hand, and he's so humbling, but he is so charming. Like you, I, I was just intrigued in every word that he had, and he would talk from baseball to Cherry Cokes to Social Security to the stock market to China within seconds. I mean, the man yeah. is brilliant, and every conversation, he made every person feel at home, and he felt every person feel honored. He took individual questions. He talked to each individual person. And those are the types of events that on a quarterly basis or twice a year basis or whatever it would be when he would come to our events or we would get to see him. Uh, I got to sit at a table with him once for dinner with about 10 people. You know, I got to see him speak at various events. I went to many of the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meetings. It was like being part of a top end rock concert. I mean, it was just the coolest thing you could be. I mean, it was like, I can't explain how cool it was. And for me, who's a guy who barely graduated high school, it was humbling to say the least but it was also very prideful in the same breath. Now, did you ever hear him play his ukulele? 
I did not get to hear him play his ukulele, but he talked about it a lot. Because he's, he's famous for that, for listeners who don't know. He, he learned the ukulele many years ago to woo a woman, of all things, and that didn't work out. But he, he stayed on the ukulele, and now he's quite famous for pulling it out in stockholder, uh, shareholder meetings and all sorts of events. That's a fascinating story. I love hearing that about Warren Buffett. You talked about his aura. Now, do you think that that aura is in your mind? If you were to just meet Warren Buffett and not have a clue who he is, would he have that aura? Sure, he'd still have the charm and the intelligence, but you talked about that aura that was around him. You know, that's a great question. I haven't been asked that one, so that's a one I haven't been asked. <laughs> I actually, I still think he would have it. I don't think that certain people would be as aware of it as I was, but he is so comfortable in his own skin. He clearly knows who he is. Yeah. He clearly knows his brilliance. He clearly understands what he is not. And what the, why he has such an aura it's because I've n- I've not met many people that are as comfortable in their skin as Warren Buffett is. And he is he's also one of those people that I think has reached part of his true potential as to who he is as a human being and a spiritual being. And I think people like him or Oprah Winfrey or people like that that are really living out their brilliance as to why they're here, I think their energy does vibrate at a different level. I think their mind and their psyche and their understanding and their energy as to who they have to be to show up in a room and to control that energy in the right way, I do think it puts on a different vibe. I really believe that. So what about you? You were the CEO of one of his big companies, yet you talked about the honor of getting to sit with him and meeting him at quarterly. So what role do his CEOs play in his life? Has he just got so many companies that that he really can't keep a tab on all of you. I, I would have thought that you would have a somewhat of a special place in his professional life. Well, he really is, um, you know, at the company levels that we were at, he definitely allows on his leadership team to then manage those companies. He is not a micromanager by any means. Did I, by no means did I report to Warren Buffett, but I reported to people second and third under Warren Buffett. And he gave overall direction for companies that needed to happen and let people execute that. What he does know is he knows his information about those organizations to the T. So even though he may not know everything that's happening and every nuance, at the shareholder meeting as an example, if you go to a Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting, they have microphones set up in the the audience. And there's usually 20,000 people in the audience of the Berkshire Hathaway conference. So the scenario with Buffett is that if you stand at a shareholder meeting and you understand that he knows every number that of every single company, it's, it's astonishing where someone in the audience might be from Australia, they might be from London, Chicago, San Diego, and someone will get up to a microphone and say, Mr. Buffett, I have a question about this, or I have a question about that. And Charlie Munger, who sits right next to him, it's amazing. These guys, you have Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, and Charlie Munger is just another character. He's a fascinating guy himself. But they sit up and they take questions from the audience for three to four hours of all kinds of various topics, and they rattle off the top of their head about the profits, the market shares, the consumer complaints that might have come up about certain things. And Warren knows his stuff, but he doesn't micromanage out to the level in the leadership of the companies in which he buys. He buys them and expects the leaders to do what they need to do within those organizations. I will tell you, however, from the flip side of corporate, and anybody that's been in the corporate world, it doesn't always resonate from the top down through the system process because Warren is brilliant about putting the message out. He's brilliant with PR. He's brilliant and the, the media loves him. But people underneath him that run those companies, there's a lot of corporate politics. There's a lot of people that are trying to please him. There's a lot of people that are trying to meet their numbers. So there is a lot of pressure and corporate structure 
that sometimes creates fear within organizations like that. And I'm sure people that have worked within corporate companies that understand a sense of fear that happens within certain organizations for people to perform. That's something that I don't think is something that Warren Buffett resonates with or he promotes, but it's what happens to make things happen that he's looking to have, if that makes any sense. He has other people doing his dirty work for him. That makes a lot of sense. And in fact, I was about to ask you if his personality, you talked to him about being charming and charismatic. And you also talked earlier about when his company took over your real estate firm, they were aware of the importance of keeping their good people and they they made you feel good about staying and told you you were the CEO in waiting as if they were really aware of those, those very important leadership qualities in the same way Warren Buffett seems to be. So I thought the story was that that charm of his had filtered through the organization, but, but you tell us not necessarily so. Yeah, not in the division that I was. And part of that probably was because when the real estate market took a crash, when things are going good, people are nice. I mean, when you're making profits and you're producing, and our company in Southern California, at that time, the Warren Buffett Home Services Division owned like 25 different brands through the United States. And our company alone was half of all the profits of all those companies put together. Wow. So we were, we were a big enchilada. And when California dropped, it dropped hard. And so I think these people that, and they were fairly new in the real estate space at the time because they had not had gone through this big of a crash before. And when that big of a number drops in your running those divisions and you're the person holding the keys to keep it all together, you have to make some very tough decisions. And the nicety and the human factor of that just sometimes goes away. And so I also think that with the crash of the real estate market, it caused everybody to go into panic and fear. And fear was predominant in the industry. There was REOs and foreclosures happening everywhere. And within the home services Berkshire Hathaway system, there was a sense of panic and fear going on as to how far this was going to go. And so I think that's where that possibly changed. But if you look at other organizations within the Berkshire Hathaway system, you know, I did get it to mingle periodically with other divisions at various times. And there is a sense of great honor and pride being a part of the Warren Buffett system. There's, it just is. However, I will tell you at the corporate level, typically at the, at the ground level, there is the dirty work has to happen somewhere. And, you know, and, and tough things playing tough ball. And sometimes you got to play tough ball is in how the big boys work and how the big girls work. It's part of the system. And Buffett doesn't really get involved in lots of that. He lets the henchmen and the, and the hatchet people do what they have to do. And I think he likes to stay at the big picture, which is a smart move on his behalf. And he, he's, earned that. He's, and, he's earned that luxury. <laughs> and he, but he knows the hatchet is going on. And in fact, in some ways, I'm sure he probably demands it because he demands the results, but he doesn't have to get his hands dirty. But how... How nice for him. So that was the mid-90s, and you described yourself as a, a very ambitious kind of a go-getter at that period where the real estate industry was booming. How did you get there? How did you find yourself in the position where you were the CEO in waiting of a huge corporation? Because I also happen to know that you didn't graduate from high school. So tell us about the link between that job and high school. Yeah, the Buffett thing was in the round. They bought the company around 2001, but I started with that Prudential company in 1994. And then the the high school thing, I actually did graduate high school. I just barely graduated. Right. Uh, I didn't make it to college um, after that. I tried going to community college. I moved out of my house when I was 17 years old. My dad was a very strict military disciplinarian guy. I had five brothers. So you got five boys in a house with a strong military dad. And you someone's got you, you didn't want to hang around for that? Yeah. And well, my dad had this, these rules. One of them was, this is my house. These are my rules. And if you don't like it, you can leave. And so I always thought those are pretty good rules. So at 17, I was button heads with my dad constantly. 
So I moved out in a very you know long story way, which I'll t- tell you some other time. But I lived on friends' couches for a few months and you know got an apartment and I ended up graduating from high school. I finished out high school the last year. And then I tried to go to community college on and off for a few years. And I got through you know two or three years under my belt. But I realized this is not going to work for me. I ended up moving to California. I was in the restaurant hotel business. And I was in that business up until I was in my mid-20s and started meeting people that were selling real estate. And I thought, how much did they make? What did they do? How much commission did they make? Are you kidding me? And in Southern California, where house prices are very large, you can make a lot of money selling real estate. So long story short, I got my real estate license. I went from the restaurant business to the real estate business, became rookie of the year the first year, and realized I was making triple the money that I ever made in the restaurant business and was really loving it. I went from sales to management and kind of evolved into that space. And the way I got connected with the Prudential company is my company that I was working for was sold. And the guy that sold his company to Warren Buffett had been trying to buy the company that I'd been working for. And he, he missed out on the deal. They he got sold out from other and he kind of got snaked on the deal. But he knew me and he knew my numbers because he'd been trying to buy the company and saw what I had done with the offices in which I managed. We connected, hit it off. This was a phenomenal entrepreneur. And I ended up working for him in 1994, as I said, and that's how I got over to that space. So it all became part of my destiny. I mean, I think that real estate for me became the path and the vehicle that allowed me to help a lot of people, touch a lot of people, and ultimately make a lot of money and create a lot of paths I would have never made had I stayed in Indiana, had I stayed in the real estate, in the restaurant space. So it was part of my destiny, I think, and I took like a duck to water in it. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. What are some of the lessons that you still remember today from those early years in real estate, you know, on the ground, selling houses, and then when you became a manager? Yeah, one of them is that you absolutely have to believe in yourself. I mean, I think that that's not just in the real estate space, but luckily I had a very strong self-esteem you know, growing, moving out of my house when I was 17, I had to be very self-sufficient. And I had to learn to break through fear really quickly. Fear holds us all back in life. And so the power of breaking through fear and getting to meet people that I thought maybe I was not worthy of meeting at the early days, because I was meeting a lot of which people in Southern California buying homes and executives, I had to realize I had to step my game up and I had to be worthy to be in the room or to be in the meeting or to be able to go sell that $5 million house or to be able to sell a $2 million house. So what I really learned at an early age is that I had to find a way to make myself realize that I was worthy. And so I became a big believer of goals and affirmations and writing stuff down and doing my daily mantras. And so, you know, when I stepped in the room and met Warren Buffett, as an example, I believed I was worthy to be there. I believed I was worthy to have the ability to be able to lead a Warren Buffett company. And I'd earned that right, even though I didn't have a college degree. So one of the things is believe in yourself, learn how to break through fear really quickly and really rapidly. And realize that on the other side of fear is great empowerment. And then also realize that you're worthy. You know, you are worthy in this world to fulfill your destiny. And when you have those things combined, you end up exuding a sense of confidence that other people want to be around. And if you can then find the next thing is to be of service. Being in the restaurant hotel industry was a great, great leading ground for me because I was of service to people. I waited on people. I bartended. I cleared their plates. I served them dinner. I made them happy. I was a service type person. And when I went into the real estate space, I realized that's what life is always about, being of service. And it's not that it's beneath anyone because I enjoyed being a waiter. I was a great bartender. I was a great waiter. And I enjoyed waiting and serving people. I just learned to do it at a higher level. I learned to be of service with my skills and my talents at a much higher level. And it served me well by serving others well. 
So that that's all really terrific advice, especially the bit about believing yourself and breaking through. But you obviously had a very high level of self-esteem, as you said, to start with. When you think back to the your fellow rookies in the same era, in the halcyon days of real estate in Southern California, why is it that you were the guy that eventually became a CEO? What happened to the others? What did you have that they didn't have? When you looked at them as your competitors, what made you feel okay that you were probably going to come out on top? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say one, and I don't know if it's been still just in you or if you materialize it, but I think it's a combination of drive. I just had an, an insatiable drive. I had something, and I look back on that, and it was partially because I was trying to prove myself. I think many successful people that are out there, they're either trying to prove something to a family member, pr- prove something to a dad, prove something to a mom, something that happened in their life early on that, that they were told they were not good enough or they were told that something was going to happen. So probably going back to early, there was some drive that I had, some drive to prove that I was going to be somebody or I was going to be something. And so that was a big piece of it. The other piece is that I had insatiable curiosity. And since I was a guy that barely graduated high school, and but I made it and I didn't get through college, I was always curious as to how I was going to learn and how I was going to maybe get the education that I needed to better myself and better others. So I was always really, really, really curious. And I knew what I found early on is that successful people like talking about themselves and successful people like talking about their success. So I realized if I could ask them how they did it, when they did it, what did they learn? Like you're asking me right now, I realized it was amazing what people were willing to share. And so I stopped and I stopped trying to talk as much about myself. And even though I'm talking about myself a lot right now, <laughs> I just I'm, okay. I'm asking you to, but when I'm in business and sales or is the, you know, trying to get a deal closed or when I'm meeting certain people, I ask a lot of questions like you're asking right now to learn about them. And that was different. Uh, that was, was different, I guess. And because the, the other rookies that I had that were around me at the time, there wasn't a huge, huge sense of drive. There wasn't this huge sense of insatiable curiosity. And I think that that's, Part of the the things that I saw that was a little different about me now that I have to assess it. So when did the change come in your career from the executive path, the CEO type work into the coaching and leadership focus that you have now? Well, you know, that's another great question. I probably about a year to a year and a half ago is when I officially became a company, which I call Alchemy Advisors. And Alchemy Advisors came about for for a couple different reasons. One, I love the book, The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. If the readers haven't or listeners haven't read that book, Paulo Coelho is just a great storyteller. It's not a business book. It's not necessarily a how-to book. It's a great parable of the story of a young man named Santiago who finds his personal legend. But I love that name, Alchemy. And so that started my, and then I love the, the concept of turning lead into gold, turning something of value into greater value. So my company is called Alchemy Advisors, helping people transition, transform, and evolve to their highest good in life and business. That's kind of what I do. And that happened after, so after I got fired from the Prudential company as a CEO and pushed out into the world, I became an entrepreneur and I started my own real estate company. And that was in 2009, one of the worst real estate markets still pending at that time. And myself and a couple partners grew that company from very, very small up to about um, eight or 10 offices. And we were doing within the first two or three years, we were doing a billion dollars a year ourselves in sales volume. Uh, And I I had recruited a lot of those real estate agents from Prudential that wanted to follow me. So within Six or 10 months after I got fired from Prudential and I was the underdog because a lot of people liked me. And I think I moved 225 real estate people over in the first six months. We started a mortgage company and an escrow company. And so that was a good run. And so I did that for five years. And then about a year and a half, two years ago, I was in the middle of trying to sell my company. And my wife got unexpectedly very, uh, not sick. She had a, a minor surgery 
which in and out, kind of easy kind of in and out surgery. She got home and two weeks later, unexpected, you know, we thought it was some unrelated. She had a, an internal bleed and started bleeding internally. We rushed her to the hospital. She ended up being in a coma for three weeks. She almost died on the operating table when they tried to open her up and figure out what was going on. And Goodness uh, I, thought she, I thought she was going to be dead. I mean, it was, it was that. I mean, they had me call all the family in. We had them in the lobby of the intensive care unit. Uh, I was signing off for her organs because they didn't think she'd make it for the night. So it was a real wake-up call for me as to, am I really doing what I'm supposed to be doing right now? Am I really doing my high calling? And um, there's, not, there's a lot that was going on at the time. I don't have time to go on, the, on this particular call. But part of my dream had become my nightmare, even before my wife went in the hospital. And so I've been trying to sell this company. So when your dream becomes your nightmare, you can either stay in your nightmare and stay in a really dysfunctional situation that's no longer going to work the way you want, or you can break free and do something else. And my wife's almost passing caused me to say, there's a whole other chapter of my life I need to get on and pursue. And that was getting out of the container shell of just being in real estate and going and doing something in a bigger way. So I realized what I wanted to do is what I'm doing now, go out and consult for other entrepreneurs, other businesses, other leaders. I wanted to become a serial entrepreneur and be involved in different businesses. I wanted to do some writing and speaking. And I'd been talking about doing that for a few years, even when I was running my real estate company. And when my wife almost died, it gave me a brick upside the head and it gave me a two by four to have the courage and to have the support from her after she survived to say, go live the the life you want to live. Even though I thought I was doing that at the time, I wasn't living it as fully and as fully as expressed as I'm stepping into now. And I'm in uncharted territory right now. I'm in uncharted territory that I'm really like, I can swim better than I thought I could, (laughs) but it's not like I know it like the back of my hand, like I did for 25 years in the real estate space, which is exactly why I wanted to do it. I've got a few questions about this concept of the higher calling. First of all, to point out the obvious it's wonderful that you found your higher calling, but you wouldn't have been able to do this if you didn't have that career that we've just spoken about in real estate, because what you've got to offer now, I guess, is a collection of wisdom that you gained during those up and down years in a, in a, really, in a really hot kind of corporate space. Yeah, that's a good point. And I do believe that everything happens for a reason. I know people have heard that cliche statement for a long time, but I believe it at the core of who I am. Like I believe every conversation that I have Every person that I meet, every encounter that I have, every success story that I have, every fire, you know, getting fired, those all had paths and steps that led to me to be exactly where I'm supposed to be. And that knowledge that I acquired along the way was to get me to the next level where I'm going and to the higher calling. So you're right. When I get to coach and consult with clients right now, I can say that I have been in a table at a corporate America situation with a Warren Buffett type organization that is very much into understanding accountability and balance sheets and P&Ls and projections and formulas and politics and all of that stuff. And I've been in the seat of an entrepreneur that's more, you know, bang them up, shoot them up, cowboy, let's go get them. And, and I've been in highs and lows where I've had boats and yachts and houses and investment properties. And I've also been in a situation where I've had very challenging financial situations in my career. So I have had all of those experiences as well as health challenges and where I've you know, almost died on an operating table twice in my adult life. I've also overcome addiction issues and, and various things. So all of those things that happen for a reason are absolutely helping me right now in this, what you mentioned as higher calling. And I believe that my higher power wanted me to use this story in a really transparent way to try and help others prevent some of the things that I did from happening in their life if I can, and or if they're in the middle of it, how can I help mitigate some of it for them and help them get to the other side? And that my 
resilience, because I'm a very resilient person, is now because I'm supposed to help other people learn to be even more resilient than they are now and help them get to their higher calling. So I'm completely tuned into everything happens for a reason. Steve, every time you speak, I come up with about 10 new questions that I have to abandon because then you say something else that's interesting and I want to ask you about. Look, you, you mentioned in there amongst this fantastic story of career success and enlightenment, you mentioned some addiction issues. That uh, doesn't seem to fit with your story. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I'm one of those guys that believe for many years that you work hard, you play hard. You work hard, you play hard. And so I always took great pride in that. And what I what happened was I always had kind of a weight issue in, in my teens. I was a fat guy, but then I'd go up and down of weight. But when I started getting in the corporate world and drinking became part of the process of dining and whining and you know, not whining, you know, whining and dining people and the success that I was having, the pressure that I was having, the luxury of life that I was having, being on boats on weekends, drinking cocktails, my alcohol use became very, um, let's just say I became an overachiever. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've always been an overachiever. I'm kind of a, a pedal to the metal kind of guy. Yeah. And I realized that my drinking was really taking charge of my life. And I hit it very well. I still was climbing, climbing the ladder. And most people, not all, but most people did not know that I had an alcohol issue. But I realized it was taking me by the throat and the heart and the soul. And my, I was starting to get extinguished out. And I came to a really heavy realization that I had an alcohol problem. And I took action and I realized I had two paths that I could go down. One, I could keep going back to try and keep up the appearances and keep running the corporate world and be a functioning alcoholic. And I finally admitted that I was one. Or I could get my head around it and realize and know that that was going to deteriorate pretty quickly and wasn't sure where that was going to lead. I had kind of a vision when I was in a shower one day about two different paths I could have taken. And one of them was not pretty and one of them was very glowing. And I made a decision to get that under control. And I haven't had a drink of alcohol in 13 years. So that was a, one of my biggest, of all the successes that I've probably had in my life, that's one of the ones I'm most proud of, even beyond meeting Warren Buffett and beyond becoming the CEO of a company is getting my alcohol addiction in check. And so that was a big one. You've just got so much to share with your clients, haven't you? An enormous success at, at an executive level, climbing there from barely graduating high school and then battling alcoholism along the way. You, you really have got a lot to offer your clients. It's, it's fantastic that you've found that higher calling. Now, I'm interested in this high calling and, and what your advice is to my listeners and to the people that you coach, because, you know, frankly, you had the resources to to indulge in this higher calling, right? You had the extreme life experience of watching your wife nearly die. And that made you think, hey, I, you know, am I really living out the best Steve Rogers I can be? But you had made a ton of money through your career. So for listeners who haven't made a ton of money through their career, and they hear you talking about the higher calling, they might be sitting there saying, well, that's all very well for you, Steve, but I can't quit my job and go and take a punt on doing what it is that I was born to do. I'm just not in that position. I've got bills to pay and, and we're living month to month. Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I have had, even though I've made a lot of wealth in my life, I've also lost a lot of wealth in my life. So I've had different times where I've had to take that effort at different points. And as an example, when I left the Prudential company and got fired, I walked away from a two-year severance package at that time to go pursue my higher calling. And I took a great, great risk in that because at the time, not only were the real estate markets declining, I had maybe five or six investment properties. I had a 50-foot yacht. I owned a multi-million dollar home. 
I had a lot of assets, but many of them were challenged because the real estate market was going in the tank. You couldn't loan against your real estate properties. And I knew that my income of making a lot of money as a CEO was now turned off. My paycheck was turned off. And the severance package that I would have been able to take, I chose to walk away from because had I taken it, I would have had a two-year non-compete in the marketplace. So I could have gone and become an employee for someone where I could have gone and become an executive from another company, say Cobble Banker or Remax or something like that. And I was offered other opportunities, but I knew that I had a calling that it was time to become an entrepreneur. And my wife was supportive, but scared as hell and you know didn't really want me to go that route. But I walked away with no money out of Berkshire and started selling everything that I possibly could to put everything into the business. And we, we went down and dramatically downsized. We sold our home, we sold our boat, we sold all of our stuff. And we became in really financial hardship why I was starting to build a real estate company. So it was a very challenging time that caused us to have to borrow money, um, to have to, you know, so I know what it's like to struggle and strive. Don't get me wrong. I understand what it's like. And it's scary as hell. But if you really believe that there's some higher calling for and you believe you have a mission, you will find a way. What it talks about in the Alchemist book is, is when you finally set your mind to do something, the universe conspires towards your success. And there's a way that things just start lining up that you will manifest stuff that became opportunities that you can find ways to happen. So I have started things from scratch and with bad credit and with hard times. So it, it's a very doable situation. And even with the situation, you know, I'm not nearly, nearly as financially well off right now as I would have been at some of the peaks that I had in previous life because when my wife got sick, I had massive large bids on the company to buy the company. And because of her illness and because of me making a, a different decision, I took dramatic cuts on making that happen because I wanted to be free of the situation. And to me, freedom and choice and opportunity and pursuing your passion inside is more important than the money. And I believe the money will come when you take the risk and do what you want to do. So, so, so no regrets, hey? No, no, you know, really not. I mean, my wife, if you asked her that story, she has a few regrets. Uh, <laughs> she reminds me, and she reminds me of them periodically. But do I? No, I really don't. I really don't have any regrets. I mean, I have lessons I've learned. I have things I would do differently. But I, I have no regrets of getting fired. And I believe that even though they fired me, I obviously had something to do with that. I mean, I'm responsible for everything in my life. There was decisions that I made. There were actions that I took. There were heads that I butted up against. There was people that I told no to when I probably should have said yes to because I was stubborn or whatever it might be that caused, even though I was there 15 years and helped build that company, there was also a reason I got pushed out of that company. So I realized that everything is responsible in our life. And so I believe I'm a manifester of not having regret. I really don't believe in regret personally. So what specifically is your message to people who are listening who might be stuck in a job that is okay, but not their dream job? They know that there's something a little bit more out there for them, but they're locked into this life that we all create for ourselves where we, you know, we, we spend the resources that we bring in from our job and we can't really see a way to make that change. Yeah. I, I think the first thing is to plan what that looks like and map it out and write it out. I mean, many people spend more time planning their vacations than they do planning their life. You know, I have a friend of mine who's on a trip right now throughout the country and he's going to 50 different states and they've mapped out ahead of time. They For three months, they plan for this trip. They plan on what cities they were going to go to, what route they were going to take, where they were going to stay, and they plan this whole thing out. Well, for your life, if you're stuck in a situation or a job that you don't want to be a part of or in a business that's not working, write out what you do want to be doing. Make a life plan, make a goal, make it set, have it mapped out. Just like if you were creating a business plan that you were presenting to an investor to go fund a business, 
They'd want to see your executive summary. They'd want to see your mission statement. They'd want to know how you're going to get there, what the steps are, what the timelines are. So I help people to understand, get it down on paper, write out what your ideal life is. One of the things I do with my clients is I have them write out and map out in writing. What does your ideal day look like? What does your ideal mate look like? What does your ideal month look like? And let's design on paper what you want your life to look like. And let's start taking steps to get there. What happens is people, the difference is we have this vision in our, our mind, what we think our life should be like. Then we have the reality of what our life is. And in between those two things is stress. And in between those two things is unhappiness. And in between those two things is where people are disheartened with life and they have sadness. And that's where we fill voids with those things so that we use things like alcohol and food and addiction to fill that space because we're not always on our higher purpose. So I think that part of the, the message is get it down on writing and see if you can create a visible plan that helps someone and someone can keep you actionable to that plan to start taking baby steps to create the life you want and find ways to phase out of that job. I don't always advise people turn off the list, you know, quit your job tomorrow and go start a new business. No. Well, let's start mapping it out. Can you do that in three months? Could you do it in six months? Could you do it in 12 months? Because if you don't, you're still going to be in that miserable job 12 months from now. Let's map out what you could be doing six months from now. So I just say, have a plan, make a plan, work your plan. That's great advice, Steve. Hey, uh, before I hit you with my last few questions, I'm really interested to know now everything that you've done in your career, everything that you've seen, the jobs that you've excelled in when you've been fired, your own businesses and the coaching you do, what's the Steve Rogers leadership model? If you were to put down on paper, build me a leader, I'd love to hear what that sounds like. Yeah, the very first thing that comes to mind is what some people used to tell me that they liked about me as a leader. And one of those was leading by example. And that goes back to even when I was in the restaurant hotel industry. When I was uh, the manager of a restaurant, I knew how to bartend, wait tables, cook a meal, be a chef, be a sous chef, order all the supplies. I knew how to do all of what needed to happen. And then I led by example. I make sure I, I worked harder than anyone else. I sh showed up earlier. I stayed late. I always made sure I was positive and happy. So the first traits of a leader is to show up and be the example as to what you want people to be led to. The next thing is to make sure you're always constantly expressing the vision. I think people are dying for vision in leadership. They want something that's clear and vision and exciting and cool and inspiring, but there's a realistic plan on how to get there. So part of leadership is constantly reminding the people around you what it is you're doing this for and what the higher meaning is of the company, the higher meaning is of the statement, and then give them a feasible plan on how they're going to get there. And then the next thing is contribution. How do they contribute? How can they be of most value in what they do, helping to the higher calling, but how can they maximize their independence and their self-worth within that plan and be appreciated for it? Mate, that is fantastic stuff there. You've got to, is that your, your three-point Steve Rogers leadership plan? I just made it up as you asked ah, me. Look, hey, I, I think that's, <laughs> that's really nice stuff. All right, Steve. Now we're going to wrap it up really soon, but as I always say, you're, you're not off the hook yet. I always ask my guests the same four questions just so we can, I mean, we, we, I feel like we know you pretty well, actually, but we're going to know you a little bit better after these four questions. Okay. Tell us about the Saturday night you would most look forward to. Would it be an intimate dinner with your closest friends or would it be a big party with lots of people you know? Intimate friends. <laughs> Almost everyone says that. All right. What about... Now, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this question. Are you most likely to get caught daydreaming or to get bogged down in the detail? Oh, that's, that's really a tough one for me. Uh, to be honest with you, it's probably, oh, God, that's a really tough one because I do both of those. I would say I, I probably get caught daydreaming. 
uh, about the next thing, the next vision, the next thing where I'm going, I'm on to the, you know, I, yeah, it's probably Dame doing the next thing. The reason I was stuck on that question is because I also sometimes do get stuck in the detail and the minutia. And I catch myself sometimes, especially now as a solo entrepreneur, I'm wearing all hats. So I'm not as focused on the vision as well because I'm pushing all the buttons. I'm learning Infusionsoft and I'm learning Funnel. So I'm getting bogged down in that, which I don't normally do. So that's a tough question for me. I do both of those things. All right. Very good. What about making decisions? Are you a slave to rational thought process or do you make decisions based on emotion? I'm a pretty quick decision maker and I follow my gut. I definitely want intel and I want information, but once I make a decision, I make it and I move to the next thing. And I had to do that. Being a CEO of the the company, when I had so many people coming to me with decisions every day, I mean, every email, every phone call, everyone needed a decision. And if you bog them down, you really, you know, have a traffic jam. So I really had to learn to become very succinct in making swift decisions with as much information I had at the time. And sometimes I made the wrong decision because I didn't have enough intel, but at least I made a decision and then I would come back, change and move things forward. And very last question before I get you to talk about your book, you're going on a road trip. Do you like to plan the route, book the hotels and know exactly where you're going? Or do you just get in the car and drive? I'm a planner and know where I'm going. And my wife is, let's just drive. Why do you have to plan everything out? So I'm a planner. Oh, really? Yeah. Very interesting. That's great. You know, that's, I like to get those little insights Essentially, what I'm doing there is a very rough MBTI profile on you. So from what you told us there, you're an introvert, intuitive thinker, and you're a, a J, a judger. So you're an INTJ. Have you ever done MBTI? I've done DISC, but not the one uh, you're mentioning. It's probably the same, same thing. I've done the Platinum Rule with Tony Alessandro. I've done DISC, and I've done a few others, but I haven't done that one. Very similar stuff. Now, I'm really interested to hear about your book, Steve, before we go. What, it's coming out soon. What's it all about? Yeah, it comes out about this uh, another two weeks in May here. So it'll be around the 18th or 19th of May. It's going to be launched on Amazon. It's in both pa- paperback and Kindle version. It'll be on audio, um, audible book within about a month after that in June. I play up on the theme alchemy. So it's called Lead to Gold, an entrepreneurial's guide through transition and transformation. And quite frankly, much of it is, uh, some of it is what we're talking about on this call today. I talk about some of the journeys uh, that I went through, but I also give people step-by-step how-tos. If they're starting or running businesses, I give them step-by-step how-tos on how to have a daily checklist for their life. I have a daily ritual that I go through of giving myself a scorecard on my daily life and my bonds, my business, my body, and my being. And how do you stay accountable to having a a well-rounded life? I talk about relationships and the importance of maximizing relationships inside and outside of your family. So the book is a lot about transition, no matter what you're transitioning from or to. So we're always in transition. And most people are fearful of transition and change. And I try and make the book that it really should be your friend. That transition and change, change, if you can make it your friend and your ally, that it really becomes a much more peaceful place to be in your head and in your life. And the book talks a lot about that. So for about 20 bucks, you're giving away everything that you know and everything that you do when you're coaching people. Well, you know that and more. <laughs> <laughs> What's, where's the more come from? Well, on the day of the book launch, which may be after the time this, this thing comes out, we'll see. On the day of the book, I'm actually having a bunch of bonuses. If someone buys the book on the day of the launch, which is like May 18th, I have bonuses that are being given. Brian Tracy, who's a well-noted speaker, writer, author guy in the U.S., has uh, done the forward in the book for me, but he's giving some bonuses out for his programs. John Astroff, who was a guy that was in the secret movie and book uh, as a friend of mine, he's giving out some bonuses of audios and books. A guy named Greg Reed, who's been endorsed by the Napoleon Hill Foundation from the Think and Grow Rich series, uh, is giving out some bonuses. So I have some of my friends who are giving out bonuses beyond my book. So I'm trying to over 
overgive to everyone. Oh, that's fantastic. What date did you say that's going to be released? We're shooting right now from May 18th, if all goes well, on the Amazon approval upload process. All right. Well, Steve, I haven't looked at my schedule for this episode yet, but I'll try and get this episode out before May 18th so people aren't hearing a um, uh, an out-of-date date. Well, and if they are and the book's already come out, if they listen to this show and the book's already out and they didn't get the bonuses, if they email me after this show, because it's afterwards, and they tell me that they heard this on your show I will honor the bonuses to them because they're only good for that day. But as a gift to you and to your your listeners, I'll honor the book promos for them after the book launch as well. Oh, Steve, that is so kind of you. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, Steve, it has been absolutely fabulous talking to you today. You've had such an interesting career and and I really love the way that you conduct yourself. You're a, you're someone who, who who's a giver. You you give your time and you, you you're happy to hand over all your wisdom and just open up your story to us. So I, I really appreciate that. It's been my pleasure. You're a great interviewer and a lot of fun. And the accent always, I told you, even an extra bonus. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you, Steve. Thanks very much. You're right. Thanks, everybody. And that was Steve Rogers. Fascinating, honest, articulate, and personable. I loved hearing the stories of Steve's time in the corporate spotlight, working for Warren Buffett and feasting on the pre-GFC real estate gravy train. But most of all, I enjoyed Steve's openness about his career, his life, addiction and his plans for the future. As always, I'll share the lessons I took with my chat from Steve on the podcast page for this episode. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. I'll also post some links to where you can find Steve and his book. And don't forget Steve's promise to Team Guru listeners. Even if you listen to this podcast after the May 18 release of his book, if you shoot him an email, you'll honor the free giveaways that were supposed to be just for the day of release. So, if you're a budding entrepreneur, it might be worth getting your hands on a copy of Steve's Battle Guide for Entrepreneurial Success. As well as our website, you can find Team Guru on Facebook, Twitter, Stitcher, SoundCloud, LinkedIn, and our very new presence on Instagram. Like, comment, poke, tweet, share, whatever it is you like to do on social media, we'd love to hear from you. And keep an eye out for the next episode on this, my mission to bring the theory of team and leadership development to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.